Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, um, John's gone, so we can do whatever we want. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into a story. We're going to jump into one of the greatest stories ever told, ever written. Um, a short story, about two pages in your Bible. And we're going to jump into it in the month of July. And it's in four chapters, and we're going to do four sermons, one on each chapter, and we're going to trek through this story. Well, I keep saying story because the reality is, is that we are made in the image of God, and God is a storyteller. He reveals himself to us in words. He forms those words into meaningful chunks that can then relate to us and transform us. That's a story. Uh, we are a story receiving people. We're a storytelling people. All people are storytellings. Everyone tells a story. And by story, I don't mean merely a fictional story. I mean, we talk about going to the grocery store. We recount last week in a story format. We don't do everything bullet point. And bullet point type of information receiving doesn't really transform us, doesn't really capture our imagination. But a story with characters and conflict and resolution, that's what transforms us. We love telling stories and hearing stories. And that's what we're going to do together is we're going to enter into God's great story, the Bible, into this one little sub-story. And we're going to see that this story, over this month, we're going to see that this story has significant transformative power for our imaginations and how we engage in the world. But before we get into the story... Um, we have to realize one thing. Um, we've been doing this thing chapter and verse the last two uh, Wednesdays. And one of the things that we've talked about as we've jumped into Genesis, Wednesday nights, 530, shameless plug. Um, that's what we're doing on Wednesday nights. And we've jumped into Genesis. And one thing we've had to learn right off the bat is that uh, this book and these stories were written to ancient people in an ancient culture, in an ancient language. And uh, we are going to have to do some work to understand the story more fully. And we're going to have to do that right off the bat. Sentence one in the book of Ruth um, is going to cause us to engage in the ancient world so that we understand this beautifully written story, this beautifully told story, that has such significant power by the time we get to the end of it. Um, we're going to need to jump into the world. We're going to need to set the stage. Uh, we, we have this phrase on a chapter and verse that we recognize the Bible was written for us. That's what Paul says. All scripture was breathed out by God for you. But it wasn't written to us. It was written to ancient people. When, when it says, in the days the judges ruled... And instantly, it's expecting the, the first readers to know, oh, I know when that was. 
And it's going to talk about the Moabites and the Israelites and these towns. And it's going to, it's, the writer is expecting the reader to know what these things are and how this story works. What's the cultural setting that makes all this make sense? So we have to do a little bit of digging right at the front end. And then we're going to jump into the story proper right after that. So if you can bear with me, I think that this setting the stage of the story is going to help us in the long run. And I've been tasked uh, this week with kind of setting the stage first. And then as we go into the story in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, we will hopefully receive it more like the original uh, recipients did. And we'll be closer to the, authorial, the author's intent in writing it. And we're going to talk about a couple nerdy things, um, but it should be fun. Um, so, right off the bat, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so when was this book written? When is this story told? What's the setting? It's the days when the judges ruled. Well, if you haven't read the book of Judges, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that it is not fun, light, easy reading filled with great stories of triumph and faith. There are some of those in there, but mostly the book of Judges is the low point for Israel as a nation. They've come out of the wilderness after 40 years. They've come through the conquests in Joshua, and now they're settling into the land, and they are struggling big time with following Jesus. I mean, I say Jesus, but I mean Yahweh, their God, who Jesus is the second person of, that, of the Trinity. But they're struggling to follow God. They're struggling to follow Yahweh. And Judges kind of chronicles how bad it is. If you want to taste, go read Judges chapter 19. Um, but be warned. And that's just one of many, many, many stories um, that you can see if you wanted to see the, the lows of the people of Israel. So we're in the time of the Judges, which is a bad time. Um, there is the, the book of Judges, which is right before the book of Ruth. So if you're in your Bible, you just switch back one page and you read the last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's bad. If you know the human heart, which you should because you have one inside you, that's bad, okay? Humans tend to mess things up, especially humans who have, de have departed from their king, who, by the way, the king of Israel, according to Exodus, is God himself, is Yahweh. Exodus 15, 18, Yahweh shall reign as king forever and ever. Well, we haven't gotten very far, and the, the narrator is saying they've abandoned their king. They have no king. And so they have, they, we have these stories of these judges who come in and rule this kind of tribal nomadic clan who settled in this land, and it is bad. And actually, through the second half of Judges, you see this phrase repeat over and over. In those days, there was no king in Israel. If you just go back even further. In those, day, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right, right in his own eyes. The book, the author of Judges is reminding you, these people have abandoned God. The Israelites, already, they've abandoned God. So, in the days when the judges ruled, uh, if you just came out of Judges, you're like, dang it, I'm ready for something good to happen. So, the time is bad. 
There's no king. Okay, well, who are the characters in the story? Well, we have the Israelites and we have the Moabites. And they're going to be represented by individuals. But in general, we have Ruth the Moabite. She's called Ruth the Moabite. In this short little story, this two pages, she's called Ruth the Moabite eight times. And we have Naomi. And these are, the two, these are two main characters. We're going to introduce another one later on um, in the second chapter. Um, but in this first chapter, we have these two main characters that are set of Naomi and Ruth. But we have these other figures, Elimelech and Mehon and Kilion. And what, what we have is we have Israelites and non-Israelites. Well, these non-Israelites are Moabites. If you don't know who the Moabites are, the author is expecting you to know who they are. So I'm going to tell you a little rundown of who they are. Where did Moab come from? Where did the Moabites come from? Well, if you go all the way back to another really fun, joyful story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, you go back and you see there's Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And God sends the angels to take out Lot and his family, and then he rains down fire and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you know about Lot's wife. She turned back when she wasn't supposed to, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Well, that's in Genesis 18. In Genesis 19, these Lot and his two daughters go up into the mountains into a cave, and they're hiding, and they think they're the last people on earth. And so these wise daughters uh, devise a plan to extend the human race. And to spare you the details, you can go read it in Genesis 19. A daughter is born to, uh, I'm sorry, a son is born to the eldest daughter of Lot by Lot. And guess what his name is? Moab. So he's like this distant, distant cousin of the Israelites the ones that you don't like claiming because there's kind of sketchy details in how he was born. And he goes off, and what happens is you have Israel, and then you have the Dead Sea, and then you have Moab. So they settled here on just to the east of Israel, um, across the Dead Sea, into, in, into, the, into what is now called Jordan. So you have Moab. And so these people already are distant cousins that the Israelites are not claiming. Not only that, if you went to Numbers 22, you'd see that the people had been traveling through the wilderness um, after, the, after meeting God at Mount Sinai, and they have to travel for 40 years. And when they are in that time, towards the end of that 40 years, in Numbers 22, um, they, they, what they do is they come from Egypt. I'm going your way, so it's opposite for me. They come from Egypt, and they go into the wilderness, and they just walk around for 40 years. And then what they do is they come underneath, um, what, they go through the, the bottom of Israel, and they come up into what is now Jordan, which is Moab, and they enter into it this way. So they hook around, and they go across the Jordan into Israel. Well, when they go into Moab, the Moabites don't welcome their distant cousins with hugs and kisses. They send a prophet, may, you may have heard of, named Balaam. They send Balaam to cast curses over Israel. And this is a very famous story. But already we've seen Moabites twice. We've seen, them, we've seen Moab born in this super sketchy way. And then we've seen the Moabites cursing the Israelites. Well, just to top it off, 
on the eve of their entrance, of the people's entrance into the promised land. Finally, they're going to cross the Jordan and they're going to go into the promised land after 40 years. We've been reading the whole um, Torah at this point. That on the eve of that, they, um, the Moabite women come and seduce thousands of Israelite men. And instead of there being a sacred celebration of God's goodness and kindness towards them, there is a perverse party um, of uh, nefarious uh, acts with Israelite men and Moabite women. It's just bad. It sets the whole trajectory off into the promised land. So the Moabites, bad. So the setting the stage here, we have a bad time. We have a time when Israel is in full rebellion. It's kind of the lowest point. Who are the characters? The Israelites and the Moabites, they can't stand each other. They hate each other. So bad time, bad characters. Well, I wonder what's going on agriculturally. It's an agricultural um, society. I wonder what's happening. In the days of the judges, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so it's bad in that regard, too. There's no food in Israel. So right, if, you're, if, you're, if you've been reading Judges and you're just like, I, I don't know if I can handle any more of this. This is just hard to deal with. You turn over to Ruth and you may just kind of stop after verse 5. You just may be like, I, I just can't deal with this. We, okay, we're still in the Judges. Um, there's a famine in the land. This is an agricultural people. Now there's starvation in the land. There's no food in the land. And, oh great, they're, they're in Moab. And this Israelites and the Moabites. Well, what else do we need to know to just really feel the depth of, of, the, of the despair here? Well, um, you need to know about this thing called the Beit Av in, in Hebrew, in the ancient Israelite culture. And it's not even Israelite. It's the ancient Mesopotamian world is a patriarchal culture. Beit is house of his father. So it's the house of the father. And what is structure, there's a patriarch, a male figure, the, the eldest male figure, and he is connected to this land that he has inherited. You cannot buy or sell land at, at this time. You just inherit this land, which is allotted to your family when they went into the promised land. And so his job is to maintain the family and to make sure it's passed down from generation to generation to generation. And this is what has been happening. And we have this patriarch named Elimelech, and he has a family. And so what you need to pass it down in a patriarchal system is you need sons. You need at least a son to come. And so, you, and you'll notice the Bible kind of tracks the story of the sons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, um, in, the, in, the, in Judges, um, you do have a couple interesting women that show up, but mainly these are men that they're, that they're tracking with. But so we need to understand, and this is not part of our culture, so we have to do a little work here and get in this bait of thing. So what they would do is they would, that you'd have to have, if you were, especially if you're a woman, you have to be connected to a male. Because that male is connected to the land, and that land is what you live off of. And so what happens, and the, and the land is passed through the male. So what happens, kind of a worst case scenario would be that you had a patriarch, and, he, and then he had no sons. Or you had a patriarch, and maybe his sons die. The women connected to that family 
would be, uh, they would be left basically for dead. The equivalent to widow in the Old Testament and in the Bible is kind of our equivalent to homeless. They literally have no right to any of this land, to any of this, um, that what the land yields. What happens is it has to go to the next nearest male kin. Okay? And that's called a, a leverite um, scenario. And levy is, um, or levier is brother. So that's what it means. It goes to a distant male relative of that patriarch. So right off the bat in Ruth 1 through 5, we have judges. During the time of the judges, terrible. We have Moabites and Israelites, terrible relationship. And we have worst case scenario happen. We have a woman who's married to the patriarch Elimelech. It's Naomi and Elimelech. And they have sons. Everything's looking pretty great. But there's a famine. And it gets, it's, they're so desperate because there's no food that they have to move of all places to Moab. And they're in Moab. And, they, and these sons marry Moabite women, which is already not, kind of a sketchy thing as well. And they're married for 10 years. And they're there for 10 years. Elimelech dies, and then both the sons die. And so we are left right here at the beginning. This Every good story has a conflict. And this story fronts the conflict. Sentence one, first five verses. It is awful. This is terrible. So we're trekking here through this this story and we're seeing like already right at the outset like oh this is going to be a terrible story I don't know if I want to read it well we're going to keep reading because something interesting something huge something this story is going to by the end of it by the end of July hopefully our collective imagination as the people of God will be transformed by what the spirit has for us here in this story okay and you can start to get a sense right here with this in verse 6 when she when she decides she hears uh, Naomi sorry Naomi hears that the that Yahweh has brought food back to the land that he's ended the famine and so she decides to get up and go but what she does she's an old lady at this point and what she does is she tells her daughters hey listen um I got nothing for you. I'm going to wander back into my area and see what happens. You guys are young. You should stay. Go back to the house of your mothers and your fathers. Go back home. She actually tells them to go worship the gods of her mothers and father, of their mothers and fathers. Right? And you have Orpah and Ruth, these two Moabite women um, who at first kind of say, no, 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 we're, we want to stay with you. And she's like, look, here's the deal. I'm an old lady. In our system, remember the Be'av of the world, in the patriarchal system, in our system, we need some miracles to happen. First of all, I'm an old lady and I need to get married. That's miracle number one. Miracle number two is I need to have a child. Miracle number three, it needs to be a son. Miracle number four, it needs to be two sons. And are you going to wait those 20 years for all of that to happen? Go. Go back. You're young. Go back home. I'm, I'm wandering off. And Orpah... She's like, okay, good point, I'm out. And Orpah goes, and she also goes from the story. But we have our first 
crazy, unexpected thing happen here. And this story is one giant, unexpected story. That's how this story is going to work. And this, the author has, he has dug down low. He's taken us way down here. The time of the judges, all the men are dead, Moabites, Israelites. And then just so that darkness can contrast with this unexpected light that we have shine into our story. And it's mainly in the figure of Ruth in chapter one. And so she says, interestingly, she says um, in verse eight, she says, may Yahweh show hesed. It's a Hebrew word for loving kindness, loving loyalty. May he show you chesed as you have shown it to me and my sons and my husband. Go and worship the gods of your people. Go and live and be prosperous in your own land. And what happens is Ruth, I love the word here, Ruth clings to her and says, no, no way. Where you go, I go. Your plight will be my plight. Your God will be my God. And may Yahweh make it so. So here you have a Moabite woman who is clinging to this, this other woman who has nothing physically to offer her. If you go in destitute, I go in destitute. I'm bound to you. And what you, what's interesting here is you have this Hebrew play, this word chesed, and that, remember I told you that chesed is um, loving loyalty. And so what's, what's, supposed, what's so ironic here is that if you ever thought, like, why are we even tracking through these people anyway? Like, why, 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 who, is the, who are the Israelites that I should follow through with them? I guess because God told me to because he made the Bible. No, like this is a story. It makes sense why we're following the Israelites. We're following the, following the Israelites because they're the son of Abraham. They're the sons and daughters of Abraham. Well, why do we care who Abraham is? Because Abraham is the one who God made a covenant with that said he was going to take all the families of the earth and bring them into his presence for blessing through Abraham's seed. That's Genesis 12. So then we trek with Abraham's seed for the rest of the way. How are these people going to bring the nations, the families of the earth, into God's presence for blessing? That's, what, that's the question on our mind. That's what we're tracking with. And we just see failure after failure after failure after failure. So interestingly, here's Naomi, the Israelite, in the midst of a non-Israelite, saying, you know what, go worship other gods. I got nothing for you. And the irony here is that the chesed that, Na that Ruth should be receiving from the Israelite, for the non-Israelite should be receiving from the Israelite, this imaging forth God's love for them, it's flipped on its head and it's reversed. And the Israelite is the one who's just like, I, I, God's obviously got it in for me. You got to go. Go worship other gods. Typical of, Jew, of the time of the judges. But here's what's atypical is Ruth the Moabite images forth the, the loving loyalty of Yahweh onto Ruth, onto the Israelite. So we have a, uh, the study of mission. It's called missiology. So if you, if you trekked with the missiology of the people of Israel, it means that we're, we're seeing how they are a light to the nations and how that Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. 
Spoiler alert, it's fulfilled in the son of Abraham named Jesus. He's the one by which all the families of the earth come back into God's presence for blessing. But we're tracking this family line and we're trying to see how Israel is doing this and they're failing and they're failing and they're failing and they're failing. Here's another failure, but the story doesn't end there. We have this kind of reversal of of uh, this unexpected reversal, of mis- this missiological reversing. So they go, and um, what happens is Na- Ruth clings, clings on to Naomi and then casts herself onto Yahweh and says, whatever Yahweh's going to do with you, he's going to do with me. And we're in it together. And so they go. Ruth or Naomi sees that Ruth is not going to, um, to do this and not going to leave. And therefore, uh, she says, whatever, come on, let's go. And so they go. And, and interestingly, I mean, this, you may have seen that this is taking place in Bethlehem. I mean, that should kind of like, you know, our antennas should be going up. Like, oh, I, I've heard of this place before, I think. And uh, keep hold of that because that's going to come into play towards the end of Ruth as well. And it's going to lead us to where we're going with our imaginations. So anyway, they go back into Bethlehem and all the people come up and they welcome. And they're like, oh my gosh, is that Naomi? Right? All these women come up. And they're like, hey, it's Naomi. And Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. And Naomi says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. That's what Mara means. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. God, I left full and he's brought me back empty, right? Well, pff, I mean, Ruth is standing there like, okay. And she didn't leave full. She left with an, on an empty stomach. She left the land. See, God has this way with famines in the Old Testament. Famines are often divine judgment. But divine judgment is almost never just divine judgment. He's doing something with his people. And so what he has a way of doing with famine is he has a way of tilling up the ground of the, of the people. And what, and what Naomi is experiencing is her world being turned upside down. And what God is actually doing is preparing her world for something brand new. Okay? So that's what has been happening. She's interpreting. Sometimes I think... I experience this as well. You experience hardship. You experience loss. You experience things that you don't want to experience and you feel like God is abandoning you or he is um, chastising you for the sake of chastisement. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't do that. He, t- he may till the ground around you, but he's doing something fresh and new and, and it's always an expression of loving kindness. It's always an expression of chesed. And so Naomi lacks the imagination and the vision to see what God is doing around her. And I get it. I, I get it. I mean, she lost her husband and her sons. I mean, and there's a famine. It's not like Naomi's like just out of left field, you know, with this anger. She really is feeling and experiencing this, and I, I totally understand. But she's lost track. She's lost sight of the character of Yahweh and what Yahweh might be doing by tilling up the land of her life. So she comes back in. And here's, here's another interesting Hebrew thing. I'll leave you with this last point. Um, 
in, in Hebrew narrative, um, you have mainly, we talked about the Beit Av, and we talked about tracking with the men of the story. And it's very, the storyline is connected, and you'll come up with these genealogies, and it'll be men, connected to men, connected to men, connected to men, which is the way of the ancient world. Well, what the Hebrew narrative will do is um, often the Hebrew writers will front women in the story to tell you something new is coming. Because women uh, image forth in a special way that men can't image forth. Women image forth the Spirit of God, this life-giving person of the Trinity who regenerates his people, who... Um, creates as he hovers over the waters of the wild and waste in Genesis. The Spirit is the giver of life, we say in the Nicene Creed, right? Well, women have this special way of imaging forth the Spirit. They are the ones who bring forth life into the world. And uh, the Hebrew narrators, they know that. And so what they'll do is when they're, when they're and this is brilliant literature, is they'll start fronting women all of a sudden in the story to say, hey, pay attention. Something new is coming. So we're in a, land, we're in a time where there's no kings. And, there's, and Yahweh's not king. It's chaos. I wonder if by the end of this story, that situation is going to be resolved. If through this little story, through these little characters, God is going to change the, the landscape of Israel itself. And the, the narrator is saying, pay attention, there's a group of women here. They're all here, and they're all talking. Something is going to happen here. These women are going to show up in chapter 4 again. All these women are going to show up in chapter 4 again, and the narrator is going to front them. And if, if you want an example of this, let me just do an easy example of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' birth narrative, uh, you have women everywhere. You have Elizabeth and Mary are like the main characters in Luke of the birth narrative. So you're, you're, you're going through the Old Testament and the prophets are saying, something new is coming, something new is coming, something new is coming. And you're like, okay, where is it? And then Luke starts writing and Matthew starts writing and they start fronting women in their, in their storytelling, in their writing. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. I've seen this before. It happens all over the Old Testament but it happens especially easily to see in Jesus. And guess where else it shows up? It shows up at the resurrection. Who finds, who are the first people to find the resurrected Jesus, the empty tomb? Women. It's a group of women that go. That's not an accident of history. That's not a narratival, you know, uh, inconsequential narratival thing. The, the authors are steeped in this world and they know what they're doing. I'm going to bring women to the fore when I want to show new, something new is happening. Some new life is happening. Something new in the story is coming. So here, the author fronts women all over the place. He kind of dispenses with the men and brings the women to the fore. And we're going to trek through this little story here um, over the next three weeks after this one. So we're going to have four weeks in total, all of July. We're going to trek through this story and we're going to see this new thing that God is doing. And we may be surprised to see that really affects the way that we see the world. Because the Bible, while this story is not written to us, it is written for us. And I think Ruth is written deeply for us and has deep implications on how we view the world that we live in. 
So, with that said, I'm, I I'm just want to get, get us geared up to launch into Ruth. My recommendation would be to read Ruth over and over and over again through the month of July. If you're looking for a scripture plan, just read Ruth over and over again. It takes about 15 minutes. Read it once a day. Sit in Ruth so that you're more ready to receive what the Spirit may have for us over this month. And then if you'd like, go, maybe go check out Judges. If, if you can get a time, a sense of the timing here, because it's really going to, you're going to see like, this is a weird story. And it's weird because everything goes right from this point forward, which is totally unexpected and atypical for the time. And it's, and it has major implications when we get to the end of it. All right. So that's the, that's the um, Ruth chapter 1, the setting of the story and the characters, and we've gone through the conflict, and now we will enter into how is this situation going to be resolved. We have Ruth and Naomi entered back into the land of Israel, and they're getting ready to go, and it says at the beginning of barley harvest, the beginning of reaping. What's, what's going to happen? How's this story going to go? Let's pray. Father, you are the master storyteller of the cosmos, of the universe. You have given us your word, and it shall not return void. You speak, and things come into existence. By the power of your spirit, we receive your word, who was made manifest and our King, our King, Jesus. May it never be said that we have no King and do what is right in our own eyes. By the power of your Spirit, may that never be said of your church. Father, I pray that you would captivate our imaginations, that you would sanctify, that you would baptize our imaginations by the power of your Spirit that we would be open to receiving what you have here for us this month. Father, I pray also that you would bless John and Cynthia in their travels. I pray that you would give them rest and you would hold them tightly and you would show them chesed, loving loyalty, where they are. And we pray all this in the power of the Spirit and for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.